I think it's Carol Tomei, CEO of UPS. I've heard her remark that we need to work slow to work fast. We need to work slow in the sense of really making sure we've heard all perspectives so that we can then work fast. Welcome to Riding the Big Wheel. I'm Michelle Seeger, your host, and today I am super excited about our guest. Uh, with us today is Pam Tipton, Senior Director of Executive Programs at Emory University. Pam is an extremely successful and highly interesting businesswoman who currently leads the Custom Executive Development Programs at Emory University. She's extremely active in her community and an engaged alumni of Agnes Scott College. She has served as member of the Board of Trustees at Agnes Scott, chaired the alumni board, and previously served as board chair and advisor to the Board of Directors for Dress for Success Atlanta. She serves on the Executive Committee for Boys and Girls Club of Metro Atlanta Champions for Girls and mentors high-potential mid-career women through Pathbuilders Achieve a Program. She's also an active volunteer for local mission outreach through her church. Welcome, Pam. Thank you, Michelle. I'm so excited to be here today and for our conversation. I am so excited to have you here. I got to tell you, though, I was exhausted just reading your bio. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much for joining us. Um, Pam, I'm extremely impressed with you and your achievements, and I am extremely privileged to have you here today. So thanks again for joining me here in our studio. Thank you. Um, And I wanted to just, you know, get right to it and just talk about first education and leadership. Now, one of the things that has been really in the press lately over the past few years, and I've got like nieces and nephews that are involved in this as well as children, is about, you know, education, and you are an advocate for higher education. Um, Over the past few years, there's been a lot of controversy and conversation around, you know, do I need it? Everything from the rising cost of education to um, student debt. You know, we had that whole so-called debt relief program that Mm -hmm. really wasn't so much. Boy, there was controversy in my family around that one, Mm -hmm. you know, where Mm -hmm. I had... um, some people who graduated and paid off their debt. And, you know, the younger generation graduating from college saying, yeah, I'm not going to have to pay, right? So this was just like a lot of stuff about that. And then there's this whole conception around, you know, job mismatch to what you're being taught, right? And other things as well. So let's get your take on, you know, education and why it's important or not, relevancy or not. <laughs> And, you know, let's let's kind of hear what your thinking is. Well, for one thing, I think that continuing your education is really important. But a four-year college degree might not be the answer for everyone. So I'm an advocate of continuous learning, and that might be different paths for different people. Um, I personally believe in the four-year degree, and the reason is multifold. It gives you an opportunity to really, really develop critical thinking, problem-solving skills, build leadership skills. 
um, I'll just use my wonderful alma mater, Agnes Scott, as a shining example. So Agnes Scott has really transformed what education can look like for its students, giving hallmark experiences at each stage of their journey. So as a first year, they are enmeshed in leadership development, coursework, and assessments, and take a journey's trip that for most of them is an international trip. There are some U.S. options, but it exposes them to new cultures and new horizons that they would not have had exposure to. In their sophomore year, they have a program called SCALE that puts them inside of a corporate or nonprofit environment where they are shadowing a leader and actually doing some specific project work. So they get to understand what that's like. Yet there's another experience in their third year, in their junior year, and so forth. All the while they're working in teams and learning how to navigate those dynamics because that's what they're going to end up doing when they graduate. Then I take my nephew, um, nephew on my Tipton side of the house. His mother, also a huge advocate of education, was so disappointed when he didn't want to get a four-year degree, and it's just not what was interesting to him. But instead, he loves working with his hands, and so his friend suggested, why don't you join me and go get certified in HVAC work? And he did. Now his career is thriving. He started as an apprentice. Now he's apprenticing others. And my nephew on the theory side, my husband's side of the family, same thing for him. He's tried college. It just wasn't for him. So he is going to go learn more of a trade skill and loves it because he likes the environment that he'll be working in. So, you know, I, I do believe college is worth it. I realize there's the controversy around the debt. Um, it is Education is expensive, and you and I talked a little bit about that as we were preparing for today's conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, it's hard unless you're inside, kind of get the peek behind the curtain to realize there's a lot that goes into educating a student. You have to think about all the buildings and all the technology um, in addition to the faculty and staff to support. Um, so it, it is and probably will remain a controversy. I think that the support that comes from philanthropists and from sometimes the government is incredibly helpful, enabling those who might not otherwise have access to education to have that access. Yep. I remember when my daughter, my eldest, who's um, been out of college now, oh my God, it'll be two years. I can't believe it. It's making <laughs> me feel old. Anyway, God almighty. Anyway, I remember um, her coming to me crying, her eyes out her senior year. She still hadn't applied to school yet. And she's crying. And she said, I really don't want to go to college. I'm like, okay, but why? I just couldn't wait to get out of school. She's a good yeah. student, by the way. She's one of those, she's what I you call a skater, right? We told her she had to keep a B. And so it was great for her to keep her car and all of her extracurricular activities. Um, and that's what she did. She barely cracked a book for a B. Right, wow. one of those kids you want to strangle her sometimes. Yeah. But anyway, she's a great kid. Uh, anyway, I remember her crying, and she said, "But I have to go to college." And I said, "Why?" Because the family will look down on me. We oh. are a college-educated family, <laughs> and I'm like, "Okay, wow, this is interesting." I had no idea. 
Anyway, we had a conversation around, you know, some of the reasons. And I said, okay, maybe let's talk about what you're interested in. And do you have a trade, a skill? Now, she's really good at drawing. She's really good, amazing at doing, like, face makeup, like, yeah. um, like costuming. We've talked to her about doing things like that. She's like, I don't want to do that for a living. I'm like, what do you want to do? Journalism. Well, you're not going to get that as a trade, I don't think. Anyway, I told her that, if nothing else, it provided her a four-year opportunity to grow up mm-hmm. safely, right? Yeah. So not living in my home, in our home, but being on a campus and kind of navigating through something a little safer. Well, gosh, if that girl didn't end up going to school and loving it. Now, I wish I had a good end to the tale because she went to college during the pandemic. Mm. So she had a good year and a half, and then, you know, it was all remote, and that was a little bit difficult for her. But anyway, I think that those are great benefits. I agree. I really do agree, and I think that, you know, kids— my hope would be that more kids would be inspired to want to have that experience yeah. because to your point, it gives an opportunity to grow up some yeah. and to learn how to manage yourself, to learn how to give your, you know, this may sound very pedantic, but like getting proper nutrition, yeah. getting proper sleep, building those social skills, starting to build those lifelong connections. Yeah. You know, I'm just, I still rely so much on the relationships I built during my college years. Yeah, you're exactly right. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about how education is evolving for those that say it's a little bit outdated. You just mentioned uh, teamwork happening and other mm-hmm. things. And some would argue that, oh, college, they just talk to you. You're not really working on your problem solving and critical thinking skills. And I, I don't know that that, that was not my experience. Um, but I'd love to hear, you know, just kind of some of the current things that are going on that, you know, do prepare people for that next step. Yeah. I think that the colleges and universities that are going to thrive are the ones that can adapt. Mm. You know, and it's, uh, again, I'm super proud of the work that Agnes Scott has done. But it's becoming even more where I think today's Youth, today's students, are looking for the opportunity to have more on-demand micro-learning, having the opportunity to essentially carve their own path. Mm -hmm. And so more either independent or directed study, uh, combinations of majors. And so schools that will enable that rather than saying you have to choose one of these 22 or 30 majors. I've been astounded as I've talked to students Primarily at Agnes Scott and Emory, because mm-hmm. that, those are the populations I'm, I'm, I'm immersed in, right? Yeah. And I'm hearing about, well, I'm majoring in this, and I'm minoring in this and this, and I'm doing my independent study on that. And my eyes just wow. bug thinking, wow, but they're super curious, and they want to explore and find those intersectionalities of those topics that might on their face not seem relevant. Um, I think also education is evolving because of technology. And so how can educators and how can colleges and universities leverage technology to create a super engaging experience that is not just about the individual, Mm -hmm. but is also about the teaming? So leveraging technology to have 
maybe you can leverage it to have virtual reality, augmented reality experiences, but you can also leverage technology as a way to capture and combine information. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's staying on top of all that and it's helping. Yes, of course. You know, there's a video that was produced probably, I don't know, three years ago, four years ago, five years ago that, um, the, the education that students are receiving today is going to be irrelevant by the time they graduate. Well, that's where it goes back to the importance of really building those critical thinking and problem-solving mm-hmm. skills. Um, being able to evaluate the outcomes of AI, for example. Um, is Does this make sense? Because AI is here to stay. Mm-hmm. And so it's building the human capacity of the critical thinking and problem-solving, the evaluative it's building those leadership skills. And so I think the ways that education can further those and build up the leadership skills as well is going to be so important. So let's talk about, because I'm really interested in this. I happen to be a lifelong learner, and I think about our audience, our listening audience. Let's talk about the executive programs at Emory And then I do know, I'd also love for you to talk a little bit about, there's an executive women's leadership program as well. So I'm interested in these. Um, I have my MBA from Coisetta, but I want to hear about these other programs and why are they important? And, you know, I know they're across the country. You don't have to just be in Atlanta, but talk to me a little bit about that program. Well, so again, just like a four, you know, a four-year college degree might not be for everyone. Um, an actual graduate level degree might not be for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am an advocate for those for its right. I mean, I actually have conversations with a lot of people about should I get my MBA? Should I get a master's? And I'm like, mm-hmm. what do you want to do with it, right? And so, an MBA or a master's in analytical finance, like we offer at Goizueta, might be appropriate for folks who are, A, wanting to career shift, or B, wanting to broaden their knowledge. But for some, they don't want to invest the time or they don't really need to. So Mm -hmm. executive education programs offer an opportunity for leaders to immerse themselves in a more defined scope, if you will, over a shorter period of time. And so some of our programs and at other schools might range from – a two to two and a half days to five days. And then in some schools, not at Goizueta, there might be a two-week uh, huh. executive education program that might be a residential program. Um, on the custom program side, we develop programs that are unique to a particular company. And it's one of the things I love about my job. Wow. So I get to peek behind the curtain of what's going on inside of, a, of an organization understand what's currently kind of making them tick, if you will, what's keeping their leaders up at night, and what are some of the challenges that their leaders are facing, and then how might we help equip those leaders to address those things that are keeping the C-suite up at night, right? So we tailor those programs to an individual company. So that's kind of the work that I get to do day to day and um, have gotten to build some great relationships. But you mentioned our executive women's leadership program. And while that is not in my direct line, if you will, <laughs> I just can't help myself because it's a passion of mine. I went to a women's college. Mm-hmm. I've invested a lot of my time outside of work um, in helping women grow, you know, with my work with Dress for Success Atlanta, 
my work and volunteering with path builders um, and, and so forth. And so there is a lot of research that shows that women are not, now this is again, again painting with a wide brush, uh-huh. but women are not perceived generally as, as strong of strategic thinkers as men. And it's because, generally speaking, women tend to be a little bit more reflective before jumping in to make a decision or make a recommendation, whereas men tend, generally, to be more quick to do so. And so the Executive Women's Program is designed to help women leaders, A, think about their strategic narrative and build that narrative, build their muscle, if you will, uh, strategic thinking, critical thinking skill, and then learn how to be thoughtful about building strategic relationships and doing that in a safe environment. So we have a smaller cohort on purpose. We um, designed it so that, um, you know, we don't have a particular cap in mind, but it's never going to be a program with 200 women in a room. We want there to be that sense of intimate learning so that trust can be built. And a general philosophy we have at Goizueta is that whether it's in our executive women's program or other executive education programs, is that about 50% of the knowledge shows up in the classroom in the participants. And it's the job of our faculty Mm to facilitate the conversations that bring that knowledge out, and it comes in the form of experiences. So the faculty certainly provides thought leadership and provides frameworks upon which to kind of hang that knowledge, but then to facilitate the conversation about in reality and in practice, how does this work, and how, what are some trip hazards, and how might you get around those, so to speak. Um, and so in that setting with women, they emerge from that executive women's leadership program with a strategic narrative. And we actually do a practicum as their capstone in sharing that narrative. And it's a persuasive and they work through strategy mapping to understand what are the connection points of this strategy or strategic initiative and how is it affecting other parts of the business and who are the stakeholders that I might need to influence. And therefore, how do I go about leveraging storytelling to make it a compelling idea to move forward. Oh, boy, that seems like a great program. So you and I started to have a discussion about what some of those trip hazards are mm-hmm. that leaders face. Um, let's let's get a little bit into that. That sounds great. Okay. So I think um, generally there's always going to be gender differences in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, there's going to be as we know, you you know, the D, E, I, and B conversations that are going on. And so some of those trip hazards come when leaders perhaps don't have the self-awareness of either their own biases. Hmm. They don't um, see their own sources of power that create power differentials and power dynamics in the workplace. Um, they perhaps don't approach their work from a sense of curiosity. They don't approach leadership from a sense of curiosity and from a place of of empathy. So I think that 
a lot of times some of the trip hazards can be avoided by paying attention to those things. Now, granted, you still have to have core business knowledge and and all of that, right? So those are kind of table stakes. But it's the softer skills, I think, that make a difference and can help avoid some of those trip hazards. For example, think about emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. You know, we all have the mental and emotional capacity to pause before we react. But there's going to be a stimulus, and it's how we respond to that stimulus that can take, you know, you as an individual or a team or whatever down a productive path versus a non-productive path. It can be the thing which can create a more inclusive environment versus one where people feel marginalized. So those are just a few of the things that come to mind as I think about, you know, trip hazards in, in the workplace today. How do individuals become more self-aware? So, I am thinking right now of of well-meaning people mm-hmm. who I know yeah. that create that type of environment that isn't the most positive environment, and yet they believe that they're creating an environment of, let's say, inclusivity, or they are creating an environment of equality, but they're really not, mm-hmm. or they believe they're very empathetic and some of the things they say, you're shocked. You know, like, how do people become leaders in particular, become more self-aware? I think that it has to start with vulnerability. Mm. Because if they are in a place of believing that they are already those things you described, mm. yeah, um, they've got to take on the vulnerability to ask for feedback. And you can't just ask blindly. It's important to build trust first because if you ask for feedback and there's no trust there, you're not going to open up to me yeah. to tell me about these things that were hurtful or that marginalized or what, you know, whatever. That's one thing. The second thing is to just take a moment to think about and to literally, I encourage people to write down. Who are the people you spend the most time with? And how many of them look and think like you versus do not look and think like you? And how might you start to build relationships with those who think differently and um, come from different backgrounds than you and may not look like you, so to speak, right? Because, again, going back to that curiosity factor, you can really learn some amazing things. So I'll tell a quick story. Um, We had some moments that happened Mm pre-pandemic that resulted in some some tensions around race. And so I was trying to understand kind of where where this was coming from and and essentially why it, it existed. And one of my teammates who was a woman of color, offered to share some of her life story with me. And she said, I just want to tell you this one story. And it was about, she is a working professional. Her husband is a working professional, director of finance in a Fortune 50 company. They were with friends. One was a doctor, one was an attorney. Others are working professionals. And they they were all 
people of color. They had rented a, a chartered a yacht, a small yacht, but a chartered a yacht, Fort Lauderdale, Miami area, to go out into the bay, into the water, to watch the fireworks. And they had been out less than an hour when they were boarded by the water patrol and doing a search. And the captain of the boat, um, who was a white man, and she was careful to say that to me, was a white man, said, went up to her husband and said, we've got this. You guys continue on and have your fun. There is nothing here. This is just a shakedown. They looked around, and there was no other boat being boarded. And the water patrol stayed for over two hours. And my friend, mm. my colleague's husband overheard one of the agents saying, just find something. She said, that's just one day in my life. We are judged by the color of our skin. We are assumed guilty. She said, that's just one of probably hundreds of stories I could share with you. And so she said, that informs my lived experience and how I interpret the world around me today. And while I've had hundreds of very positive experiences, your guard's always up. I'm always worried about my children. And that's a tough way to live. Yeah. And so taking the time to learn about other people's stories that informed who they are and how they became who they are today and how their perspective is informed. On the flip side of that, you know, you've got people who have grown up in other countries and have seen innovation that's really different than the kind of innovation we might have experienced here. Maybe they didn't have um, the kind of resources that we might have had here. And so, uh, you know, my dad used to joke about, you know, jerry-rigging things. Well, you figure out <laughs> innovative ways to, to make things happen, you know, um, uh, I just lost the, the, the term he also used, uh, but, you know, you find creative solutions. And so yeah. including people who have different lived experiences than you can often bring some of the most revolutionary innovations, big or small. Yep. So uh, that was a really uh, interesting story that you just shared. It was a touching story. And, you know, as leaders, like, I, I, and it's sad, too, yeah. You know, because I, it's far removed from what would happen to me or what I believe would happen to me. Um, That's exactly how I feel. Yeah. But yeah, and I just, you know, I, I, I thought I want to believe we're further along than that, right? So what's the role? How can people, um, the role of leaders and, and individuals, you've seen a lot. What mm -hmm. is it that we can do to become more, colorblind, uh, gender blind, whatever that looks like, mm -hmm. whatever, you know, just see people as people. Yeah. Right. And how do we do that? I think shared experiences is, is one, one way. Right. Um, well, I think, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I kind of like that you use this term, you know, colorblind, gender blind, et cetera, because in the conversations that I've had, it's actually the opposite of that. Mm. I think that those who have a difference, right, have mm. a different color or gender or identity, 
They want you to see them as who they are, but also to recognize there's a whole lot more about us that is the same than is different. Right. And so, again, I think it goes back to being curious. It's about the human connection. It's about allowing folks to feel like they can show up as their whole self, which then creates a community of belonging. And there's a lot of research out there. When people can show up as their whole selves at work, they're more productive, they're happier, they're more engaged, there's more collaboration. It takes a lot of energy to suppress, to fit in. I have um, a number of people in my network, um, including family, who could not show up as their whole selves because of the age in which they grew up, because they identify as what we now call LGBTQ+, right? And the energy that took, and frankly, the angst it caused in our family at times because of the risk of being exposed, well, now that's no longer the case. And the freedom to be yourself, right? So as leaders, I think it's our role to encourage people to be curious about each other. And I, I get it. Some people are more private than others, and, mm-hmm. and that's okay. But to get to know people as people and who they are and what makes them tick and to actively seek out the opinions of those whose voices might not usually be heard, to actively think about who isn't at the table, whose voice aren't we hearing Um, how might the decisions that we're contemplating right now impact any particular group differently than another group? I think those are the kinds of things that leaders really need to be thinking about. Um, It's sometimes hard. Um, You know, I think it's Carol Tomei, CEO of UPS. I have heard her remark that we need to work slow to work fast. We need to work slow in the sense of really making sure we've heard all perspectives so that we can then work fast. We can innovate faster because we know how we can value, we know who we can go to, and and so forth. So let's talk a little bit about the current environment on campus today. I think it's a good segue based on what we were just discussing Um, Gosh, there's been social unrest. We're at a period right now. We're in the midst of the Israel-Hamas war. And there's been a lot of vocal and sometimes not positive getting violent, um, Mm -hmm. both anti-Semitism and what's what's called Islamophobia, Mm -hmm. both sides of that equation. What do you think is causing this? You know, in, in light of young people being a huge voice and advocate of diversity, equity, and inclusion, it just seems like, it, it to me, it's surprising that this is happening when you also have that voice that says, we need to have equality, right, and diversity yeah. and inclusion, and this is everything but. So what do you think could be some of the impetus behind that? And again, um, Emery was involved in some of that. We can have a conversation around that mm-hmm. as well. And 
and the president, I thought, acted in outstanding fashion. But what can people do to help, um, you know, mitigate this other than, you know, the federal government is initiating an investigation against some Ivy League colleges and other colleges out there right now for violating civil rights um, laws, which is terrible. What can we do to just like eradicate this type of thing, <laughs> if you will. You know, this behavior, I, I don't know what else to say. Yeah. Well, I think back to your first question is, you know, what, what's the impetus behind mm. all this? And, you know, if you think back, this is really nothing new. Yeah. You know, the young people are the ones who initiated the civil rights movement. And the young people, and I say young, I probably should use air quotes, are the ones who also we're protesting the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. you know, and they wanted their voices heard. And, and I think both in the case of the civil rights movement, as well as those who were protesting the Vietnam War, it's, it was not violent. It wasn't about violence. It was actually, you know, I would say approaching it from a place of love, you know, even, I mean, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was very clear about that. And, the signs that you see, the photos, because I wasn't old enough to, to remember, <laughs> obviously, but, um, you know, peace, not war, love, not war. Yet in today's world, social media is just, can you, you never really know what's real mm. and fake. It has been used in so many cases to incite people. Um, it has been used to start um, riots, but also peaceful protests, right? And in the case of Emory, we had some behavior that was misaligned to the values of Emory. Mm -hmm. Emory is a place where all voices are welcomed and heard when they're not directed in a mean way towards any one mm -hmm. individual or any one group. It's when it becomes demeaning that it is inappropriate. And I was so proud of the way President Fembes made it very clear. You know, this is a place where we want to create a safe space where people's First Amendment right to free speech can be honored, but free speech does not include this demeaning, mm -hmm. nor any type of violent behavior. Um, so what can people do? I think, you know, again, it goes back to seeking to understand. You talked about Islamophobia. Not the, Yes, there are some Islams who are radicals and are being violent against others. Think back to the Crusades. There were Christians who were being violent against others, but that goes completely counter to the teachings of Christianity. So... You can come across time and look at so many different examples, and it's really about how we respond in today. It's about sending those clear messages that violence isn't an answer. Um, it isn't going to be tolerated. Mm -hmm. It's about trying to understand what underpins, and I think it's super unfortunate that we have had leaders in this country, in government, and in corporate America, who have not only um, allowed it, but have really incited some of this mm -hmm. rhetoric, who um, aren't 
aren't saying the truth, who aren't willing to, and are themselves exhibiting those behaviors of attacking individuals. And so that that has served as an impetus. And when you have those, I don't even want to use the term role models, but some people look to those people as role models. I, it's hard for me to even call them leaders. Um, it's a difficult challenge, and I don't think we're anywhere close to a place where we might eradicate that negative behavior. Uh, but it's, I think each of us has an opportunity to try to understand other people's perspectives and to, to be very clear that that's not a rhetoric that you want to participate in and um, to essentially quiet it down in your own place of work. Uh, it's been made really clear where I work um, not just at the university level, but you know, at the business school in our team. We're not going to tolerate language that is hurtful to others. Yeah. So I want to talk about D&I for a moment. Um, I read a Wall Street Journal article over the summer, and it's, it, the, the name of the article was actually called The Rise and Fall of the Chief Diversity Officer. Right. And this whole article was about how in many large corporations, Fortune 50s, they're starting to do away with, you know, if they put in a chief diversity uh, officer role in place, they're starting to do away with that role. And they're saying it's like falling out of favor. So although seemingly DE&I, the concept, a lot of concepts are great concepts, ideas, the ways of believing why, why do you think it's falling out of favor in some pockets? What's going wrong? Because at its core, it seems okay, mm -hmm. you know, like a good yeah. thing. But what do you believe could be going wrong? I think some of it could be um, political response mm -hmm. because, you know, different companies are headquartered in different states and the political climate differs from state to state. Um you know, as we saw in Florida, you know, Disney did stand up to um, the rhetoric going on in Florida, uh, but they had to make some changes as well. And so I think part of it is political. Um, I think part of it could be, I don't want to try to presume I understand what was the foundation of any particular company about eliminating those roles, but many companies moved to make a public um uh, stance following George Floyd's murder. We're putting a chief diversity officer in place so that we can demonstrate that this is important to us. Well, putting a role in place is really different than changing a culture. Um, changing a culture is hard, and it requires, it's a multifaceted approach, but you have to start with things like examining every process and practice and how might this be creating inequality for any group? It, it isn't just about race or just about gender or just about some other demographic, but how might it be creating some sense of inequality for any group? Um, and then it's about how we treat people. It's the humanity side of it. So why might companies be eliminating the chief diversity officer? I don't know. Might they be shifting to a world where they're really focusing on cultural change. Um, it was interesting. I read um, a different article that I, um, the title of it is escaping me now, but it was 
was doing some research around DEI a couple of months ago, and this was how the article was something about um, you know don't focus on the case for diversity, equity, and inclusion. But what it was showing was the younger generations of today care way more deeply about what companies are doing, not what they say they're doing, but what they're actually doing in terms of environment and social-related issues, which includes DE&I, diversity, equity, inclusion, and I like to add the B, belonging, right? So the younger generations care a lot. It's not what are we saying on our website, but what are you actually doing? What are your hands and feet doing? And where is your money being invested? And what? how are you sourcing your products? What, what's in your supply chain that shows that you're committed to these principles? And so the research that in this paper showed that companies that were touting the business case for diversity as the reason why they were focused on diversity was actually a turnoff for the younger generation Hmm. by a landslide. But those who were silent on why, they simply espoused, this is a value. This is a core value of who we are. And you could see by the things that they were doing and the way they were investing in their communities that it mattered to them. So is it really going away? I don't know, because the younger generations care so deeply, and they are choosing who they want to work for based on what they what they as individual employees value. The question is, how are companies going to create that sense of equality, inclusion, and belonging without a focused vision and leadership that can also then affect change inside of the organization? Hey, it's Michelle. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoy our podcast and know someone who you believe would make a great guest, I would love to hear from you. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and let's talk. I'd love to hear your feedback. And as always, may it inspire you in your own personal and professional journey of life. 